Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast and to a very, very deep and expansive conversation today with Michelle Maloney. Michelle is a simply marvellous being, someone that I have been kind of in awe of for a few years and been drawn more and more so to explore the world that she sees, her work, and really a way of being through frameworks of governance that nurture very different systems and structures and conditions to create our better world. And this conversation really is, to me, an optimistic one, where Michelle explores the many, many pathways to show that everyone can have access to systems which nurture people and planet. I hope you enjoy. Michelle Maloney, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so wonderful having, you know, spent many an hour in virtual space with you over the recent months, as we'll talk about at some point, no doubt. It's it's wonderful to have a little, oh, I feel like it's a little private session with you today. I'm deeply honoured. <laughs> no, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Where are you coming from today? Where, where in the world are you? I am very happy to be joining you from the um, wonderful ancient lands of the Yagara Turrbal people here in North Brisbane. Always important to acknowledge country. Um, it's a bit overcast and cool, which is a nice change for Brisbane. Yes, well, I, I'm likewise overcast and cool, probably cooler, I would imagine, <laughs> than you are in Brisbane. Uh, yeah, at the, at the southern end of Darawal country, um, and I can kind of cast my gaze not too far away to the northern edge of, of you and country here in southern New South Wales. Um, let's just jump straight in. What would you like to share and there's so much you know that that, that can be uh, found about you and about your work which we'll get to sort of towards the end and people can go and look look you up if they're not already familiar with your work but what about your journey would you like to share before we spend the majority of our time exploring your sort of current endeavors well i guess because we're talking about nurturing conditions part of my journey is i think i was very lucky because i had parents who just they didn't have labels. They weren't environmentalists back in the early 70s, but they were people who loved the living world. They loved nature. Um, and we had many a family adventure wandering through grassy places or, you know, forests or the beach. Um, and it, it was just a love of life. So I think the nurturing conditions for me, my parents were pretty amazing people. My mum's still alive. My dad passed last year. Um, but I think my journey... I often, someone once asked me, when was my epiphany? What took me towards the environmental kind of love? And I went, there was no epiphany. I was born this way. 
I have this lovely story my mum tells me of before I was two, um, entertaining myself for hours watching little frogs inside bromeliads and gently moving them from one little water hole inside a bromeliad to another. And I like that idea that I was fascinated by the living world from the early days. But, you know, I had wonderful parents who um, nurtured anything I was interested in and also shared that love. So, um, yeah, that's a nice story I love to remember. That's a beautiful story. It's, it's a heartwarming one. And just in case, because I didn't, I would confess, until probably four or five years ago, um, just in case you're not familiar with the bromeliad, it's this beautiful plant that has these long sort of tendril-like arms that sort of splay out all the way around it. And then right in the centre, it's, it's almost literally like a sort of a, a cup, isn't it? That yeah, sort of yeah. It's like a little teeny-weeny pond inside the middle of a plant. Yeah, you're right. I, I'd never thought that to explain, but that's why have little, there was a little frog literally in every bromeliad because this was up in Townsville before we moved out west. So, yeah, beautiful. And to this day I still look inside bromeliads looking for frogs. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's such a perfect description to me of, yeah, as nurturers, as, you know, as parents, you know, and I've got two young kids at the time when we were recording this, I think, you know, there, there's – there's so much inclination now you know, to focus on what really are more abstract sort of nurturing endeavors. You know, it's the sports and the music lessons and the things at school that are defined by the curriculum that, you know, we must excel at to hit all these sort of mandatory you know, standards that everybody is apparently striving for at the same point at the same time. And yet, sort of how much simpler and generative is it to sort of lean into, you know, what's this child all about and, and, and where is their love already flowing and, and how can we sustain and nurture and then amplify that? And I think that's absolutely the principle for all people, if not all beings. Um, we all have a natural flow, you know, and I, I think today's society definitely, as many of us know, and in fact two weeks ago we had a wonderful, well, couple of weeks ago we had a wonderful talk about decolonizing our minds and hearts and it's not just about taking away the ideas of colonialism in Australia but it's the actual idea of challenging modernity and challenging these ideas of who we think we should be and what we think we should do and um, it was quite a rich and wonderful conversation and reminded me that most people appreciate an invitation to just be themselves and to be able to love what they love, enjoy what they enjoy without the constraints of being measured and, and benchmarked against somebody else, let alone our young people. So I think that's a whole nother conversation, but nurturing people is definitely about listening and caring and knowing that everyone has really remarkable things that they can do if they're just, you know, supported in their pursuit of those things rather than forced into um, a different space. I know myself I was too strong-willed to be jammed into anything much that I didn't want to do. My daughter is equally strong-willed um, and it's almost refreshing because you realise if you just listen and do your best, you don't have to force them to do anything. You just support their flow. So, Yeah. I, I Let's have that conversation on another occasion. I think this is a, this is a very rich seam that we've struck upon, but we'll, we'll rather than go specifically along it right now, let's, 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 I want to throw the doors wide open, right? Like there's so much depth and richness to your work and I, you know, I've only you know become aware of it and, and engaged, you know, 
over the last couple of years uh, and especially the work that you're doing with Nina but also you know that your earth laws work and regenerative songlines I mean just to touch on three things so I, I think rather than come back at you with a specific question right now I think let's, let's have a really sort of expansive section of the dialogue and, and me just say to you on the basis that we're going to talk for let's say half an hour now around how can we nurture conditions for a co-created better world to emerge what kind of things would you like to talk about Mm, it's interesting. It's a broad question, but I mean, obviously, my bias is about how do we nurture the conditions for human beings to be more than human focused? How do we nurture the conditions for folks to care about the living world, but not just in an abstract way like, oh, yes, the environment over there, I donated $10 to that elephant fund or that whatever fund, which is valuable and important. But how do we get people to be thinking about the living world? almost as a daily practice, um, to be more aware of the ebb and flow of life and seasons, um, the plants and the animals. As you know, I'm hugely inspired by Indigenous people's cultures, but any culture that stays connected to the biophysical realities within which we live, um, as opposed to um, some of the kind of technological directions my own culture, Western culture, has taken. And I guess for me to talk about nurturing the conditions for people to care about the living world and to make really nice decisions and caring decisions. Um, it's probably helpful for me to talk about earth jurisprudence just for a minute, because when people hear me ramble, they'll understand a bit more about the direction I'm coming from. So the two inspirations for the work we do inside AILA, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, um, from the West, Western Deep Ecology, a really remarkable thinker, Thomas Berry, um, spent many decades looking across the cosmologies of humanity and really was constantly asking the question, you know, Western societies have caused so much destruction through their extractivist mode and their anthropocentric thinking. How do we find a new way forward for our societies? How do we reconnect with the rest of the living world? He framed this term called earth jurisprudence, which is a bit big and unwieldy, but he was saying what we need in Western industrialised societies is to really understand um, that we're just one being inside the interconnected web of life and that our systems of law and governance really need to be nurturing that life and supporting life, which is very, it's perfect for this conversation about the nurturing conditions. So Thomas Berry would say, for us to have nurturing conditions to care for the rest of the living world, we actually have to change the way humans think about their place in the world. That's a deep existential kind of journey. But also at a practical level, we have to change the way we see our governance structures. And by governance, I mean the way we work together. What happens when human beings come together to do something? We normally create a few rules. We have a few people making decisions. How do we understand what we do as human beings? And how do we rethink that inside a world um, that we've caused significant harm to. So I'm interested as someone with a legal background in how we change the systems of decision-making and power allocation and resource allocation, if you want to call it that, with a particular focus on law, economics, education, and the broader realm of culture, which touches into the arts and ethics and other things. So Earth Jurisprudence has framed a lot of the work we've done inside AILA, but has also informed the work we've done in the new economy and has also informed why I work in solidarity with a lot of amazing uh, Indigenous people. Um, of course, the other inspiration I've already mentioned is Indigenous people's 
the way they view the world, and I don't want to say they, I mean some folks, but in particular um, the uh, First Nations peoples or Indigenous communities or Aboriginal communities here in Australia have just have been in this place for so long, but it's not just the longevity of their remarkable culture, it's the fact that they see the world in what I think is a beautiful, true and fair way, which is the entire world is alive, um, both the current world and the previous world, you know, the spirits or um, our, our um, relatives of all different time zones, and everything deserves respect you know, and that you live and pattern yourself into a place, but not in a dominating sort of way, but actually understanding and respecting. And I often the simplest way to sort of express how I feel about how our governance systems in Australia need to change is that we need to stop having this universal idea about what law should be when it comes to interacting with place. Rainforests need rainforest laws, deserts need desert laws, you know, where we live matters. What we do in a place matters. And more importantly, the the absolute gorgeousness of the plants and the animals, all the different creatures that live with us. I mean, this should be celebrated on a daily basis. So to me, if I had to sort of summarise the work that I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing sort of sustainability stuff. I've just done little air quotes, but no one can see that. Um, for something like 33 years, and if I had to sort of summarise what I think in terms of nurturing conditions is, we just have to be creating a culture that reinforces itself the same way that Indigenous cultures did. The norms were set when you were born. You were born into a culture that taught you to share, that taught you to love, to taught you the relationist ethos and that everything was okay, that life would provide and you would find a way and people would support you. Um, and part of that was that all of life matters, not just human beings, you know. And it, it seems so simple, but those ideas, the very ideas you're, you're born with and born into, influence what you do. And if we have a society that says it's okay to take out entire forests for a new residential development as opposed to rethinking how we do that residential development, or if we have a society that says it's okay to keep mining coal when we already know that it's contributing to climate change. Um, you know, when we have a society that allows these things and says that's normal, then you're not setting the nurturing conditions for life. But if you have a society that understands where it lives and creates its own norms, recreated norms with every generation, picking up on the knowledge of the old, learning that and sharing that with the next generation, then you have the nurturing conditions for really an ecological society. So that's what I'm interested in. How do we understand the psyche of human beings who don't value nature and how do we respect those societies that do and how do we transform ourselves into a culture that's worth, that not so much worth um, admiring but is admirable and sustainable and thinking about the future and thinking about our humble place in the bigger picture. Um, so there are all the many, many things that we think about and have inspired by, by inside the work we do in AILA, which in turn you know, inspired the direct conversation with current economics uh, to, to try to kind of have that same conversation. How do we have a society uh, that cares for each other, that cares for the planet, um, and how do we change the economy to fit that as a society? It's never really been about making a better economy. It's how do we make sure that economic conversations um, and all of those systems that we've created that we think are so real, many of which are not, we're just creating them in our heads, but how do we make all of those systems keep feeding back on themselves in a way that supports life so that there are new norms? So 
Yeah. I don't know if that sort of vaguely answers the beginning of the question. <laughs> Nothing vague about it. It expansively answers the beginning question. I'm just here, like, trying to contain, you know, sort of my own, you know, sort of personal, you know, sort of deep curiosity about two, three dozen of the of the points that you've touched on, uh, whilst also celebrating and reflecting on, I think, the most radical uh, element of what you've just said, which is the, you know, the root of it. it it's sort of a fundamental recalibration, I think, is probably the, certainly the fair term for me, and I think a lot of people of the root of us, and I mean that at a sort of individual family community societal and species level (laughs) what what is the foundational root of us what what is it that we're kind of here to do really and what i found to be most curious especially uh, just to sort of point a, a specific spotlight you know the sessions that 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 i've been in you know with you when you're hosting you know the the dialogues with mary graham and ross williams and and polina well i mean three just magnificent mag- magical beings um that are very ge- very generously you know sort of um making themselves accessible um you know to well all comers really but i think if i go back probably 10 to 15 years i would have said that if if, if i'd just been sort of taken out of that point on my own continuum and dropped into one of those dialogues i think some but very little of what was what is directly said would have landed, would have made sense. I think at some kind of essence level, I think there would have been a kind of a permeation that would have made it through. But, you know, I kind of examined my own journey over the last 15 years or so to the point where, you know, I now kind of miss being in those spaces when I'm not in them. Um, And... Yeah, I think it, it's been one of rediscovery. I think this has been the most constant way to frame the journey for me. It's been a rediscovery of what was most nourishing and sort of energizing you know, before I went most deeply into the sort of most reductionist mechanistic end of a Western education, you know, in high school and university, and then in out into this thing we call a career. Um and I was kind of in the, I think, the real crucible of that 15 years ago and have been sort of yeah, finding my way back out of it since then, where I'm now at the point where I can go into those spaces with those Aboriginal leaders and everything that they say not only makes sense, it calls and it draws me in and I kind of feel like not only are their answers apparent, but there are the most meaningful questions there as well. So sorry, that's my own little ramble back at your your ramble. So let me let me let me invite the conversation to go this way. So you mentioned law, economics, and education. Would would there be something to be said for spending a little bit of time just sort of examining where each of those could go? if we were able to have this sort of fundamental recalibration that the point of our existence is to sort of live in reciprocity and respect with all life. 
what might yeah, be possible? Yeah, for sure. These, these are some of the issues we look at in the work we do. Yeah. We don't know all the answers for sure, but we do have a lot of questions and we've been analysing some aspects of things. Depends which direction you want to go in. Well, with the time that we have, uh, and, you know, yeah, three trifling little matters like you know <laughs> the law, or economic our economy, and education. So, do, do do we do we try and touch on each of them in some? I, I think maybe a, yeah, an overview of a few ideas yeah, might be yeah. more useful than digging into one in case your listeners get sleepy if we talk too much about either topic or any topic they're not keen on. Sure, so, that's fine. Well, what, what's really nice about Earth jurisprudence, this theory that we have to place the health of the Earth at the centre of you know our governance systems, which is what Thomas Berry talks about. Um, there's a really great book called Our, uh, The Great Work, Our Way into the Future. It came out in 1999 and it was the discovery of that book in 2009 at a wild law conference that actually was the first time I came across earth laws. And um, and as a recovering lawyer type, someone who'd done the, the Western law degree, done all of those things, worked only for a few years in government on law, then I'd run away and worked with Aboriginal mates on community development and just ditched the law because I didn't like it. I didn't like its sort of cold, harsh, inhumane way of doing things, I guess. Um, anyway, so it was when I came across this book, I, I was actually quite excited as a legal slash governance nerd to discover this way of thinking about these underpinning systems that would enable us to make very specific change. You know, there's so many different ways to look at social change or environmental activism or um, transforming societies from extractivist to regenerative. You know, there's so many different ways to think about it. And as someone who had spent years studying the constructs of law and how that supports aspects of a culture or society, to come across almost permission to dabble in that area in more depth was what I found really interesting. So, so the standard blurb we say is earth jurisprudence critiques these big underpinning structures of industrialised societies, asks where they came from and why they are the way they are and analyses the harm they cause, but very importantly calls for us to be creative in our responses. So let me give you a couple of examples about what that might look like. So the really big, what I call a spearhead concept when you critique the legal system from an earth-centred point of view is in Western law, and a nice way to do this is like a thinking exercise, if you put on a pair of glasses and the lenses showed you what the Western legal system sees, and let's imagine you're looking out across a landscape like a rainforest or an ocean and you put your glasses on that only see what the law sees, it doesn't see the vibrancy of life. It doesn't see the ocean or the sand or the butterflies or the birds. What it sees are subjects of the law things that have been created or set up inside that legal system to have rights. So if you put the legal lens across your eyes, in our Western legal system, all you see are people. The rest is property. And then there's an imaginary concept as fictional as a unicorn, and it sits in there too, and it's got its own legal rights, and it's called a corporation. And a corporation's not real. When I give my talks, I often joke, you know, you don't go for a swim in the creek and bump up against something slimy and go, oh, I just saw a corporation. You know, a corporation <laughs> is an imaginary thing and it's just a way of human beings organising themselves to carry out projects or to do business together. It's not all that. But when you do the earth jurisprudence critique and you look at our legal system, you realise that the living world is nothing more than property. 
It might be property we care for. We, we hereby declare this place valuable. You are a national park. We hereby declare this place not valuable. We're going to dig a great big hole and dig up the coal. So rights of nature has arisen as um, a challenge to this one area of Western industrialised law that has progressed for, this isn't new, you know, um, many of the notions in our legal system I often say are medieval, but they're actually older than that. They're more, sometimes they're older than a 1,000 years old. And in the English legal system, that's old. You know, it's very different when you're talking about Aboriginal law, which is 50,000 years old. Um, so rights of nature says all living beings on this planet have co-evolved together, you know, uh, evolutionary companions, beautiful term, um, and we have no greater right than a cockroach to be here on this world. We have no greater right than a king parrot um, to hurt other creatures in, in such a way that we take them out completely and make them extinct or cause harm beyond us as an organism needing to live and survive. So the rights of nature is a spearhead concept that talks back to the current norms in our society that have been created and recreated and reinforced and amplified through legal legal doctrine. And that I could go into that. That in itself is a two-day conversation. But that's one example. Earth jurisprudence or earth-centered law would say one step forward for the Western system is to challenge the notion that all of nature out there is just a resource or a property for human beings to control. But there's also this wonderful um, deep argument here in Australia, rights of nature is very different to Aboriginal law, which is about a law of obligation. So that's a whole nother very detailed and nuanced conversation about how do we deconstruct our legal system to support the living world. There's lots of different ways to do that. It doesn't just have to be rights of nature, but rights of nature is a terrific way for Westerners to suddenly stop in their tracks and go, oh, I didn't realise our legal system did that. Um, I like to say the last thing a fish would notice is water. The last thing Westerners notice is their own culture and their own system because we're so used to being the sort of dominant cultural force, particularly since colonisation took our language, English, took our systems to so many other places, and pulling that apart and critiquing it matters. And then that brings us to the economy. So, oh gosh, where do you start with economic thinking? Um, so earth jurisprudence would suggest that our economic mode of being is by absolute definition extractivist. Um, again, colonisation since the late 1500s is an excellent example of the European mindset that said, oh, we're running out of stuff here, why don't we go somewhere else and take that? The expansionist extractivist mindset is deeply imbued in our culture and in those systems and structures. I'm here because uh, the, the Brits decided that um, the Irish were someone worth invading and taking over their land and then political criminals, people stealing for, you know, starvation, etc. Or my, um, I'm only sixth generation Aussie, Irish convicts, but the economic system that's imposed by elites is both human-centred in terms of they don't care about the living world, they just want to be able to extract, commodify, buy and sell and make their own money. But in fact, our economic system is not just human-centred, it's elite-centred because it's very rarely created by those who live in poverty or have been um, subjected to oppression. The systems themselves are created by uh, the elite, the wealthy, those who think they're in control. So if you take the earth jurisprudence point of view, we have to pick apart these systems and redesign them to suit the rest of the living world. So instead of being extractive, instead of seeing land as just property that we can go in and use an economic argument to dig a big hole, 
and never bother rehabilitating or even caring for it. Earth jurisprudence would suggest, and again, it links back to this wonderful theme you've got, the conditions for nurturing this better future. Whether we look at economics or law, what we need to be doing is designing our governance systems so that all of our decisions are made with the rest of the living world in mind. How do we do things without trashing the joint? How do we change these systems so that all of our activities, yes, we're takers, we have to use resources, we're human beings, we're like any other mammal, we eat things, we live, but the way we live and what we expect and how we treat other beings in that process, these are all the issues we have to consider. So economics starts as simply as the growth paradigm, GDP, these notions that have crept into our mindset and are so deeply, profoundly now in the DNA of our society, many hundreds of years old, amplified by everything that happened after the Second World War and the great acceleration in the 1950s. And in one of my talks, I give, I show some of the slides that wonderful scientist Will Steffen and others created, literally showing these phenomenal increases in what we've been extracting from planet Earth since the 1950s on top of what we've already been taking. So all of these systems come from a way of thinking and really to change the systems we need to do two things. We start with thinking differently. We literally have to engage with ecocentric thinking and I have to confess after 33 years of working in this space, one of the hardest things to do today still is to help a Western mind rethink some of the notions they've been born into. And it's no one's fault. We're born into these systems, you know, the idea that we should rethink what we expect from Mother Nature. We should rethink how big our houses are or, you know, rethink what we eat, where we get our energy from, all of these things. So many, some folks think they're very entitled to everything they've got and the rest of us are thinking maybe we take too much, maybe we're asking for too much. And I'm not saying we go backwards. Everyone's freaking out about that idea. But a slightly simpler way of being a less consumptive way of being. And in fact, it's not a negative at all. It's rethinking what we love and getting more of what we love, time, company, you know, spending time outdoors or with family. In Australia, everybody loves going outside when they can, being in the bush, being at the beach. The world I'm talking about is imbued with a deep respect of place and imbued with knowing we're smart enough to live in a way that reduces our impact and increases our access to the good stuff. More time to play, more time to be a full human being, less time, you know, stuck in environments and offices and places like that where we're not really always nurtured as a human being. Don't get me wrong, I love work. I do love to be busy, but there are ways to do it across a society that support more people. So, so yeah, in terms of examples of how you shift And it's very context and cultural specific. You know, what an Aussie wants to look at and unpick and put back together is going to be very different to what someone in New Zealand or someone in the US or someone in the UK. Um, I speak very much from looking at this continent where the colonial project is younger than many other places. And although we've caused phenomenal harm to First Nations peoples and biodiversity loss and land clearing, we still have a tremendous amount of wonder and beauty left so many good things. And I often get asked because I've been working on a lot of what I think deep issues for a long time. And people say, how do you keep going? What motivates you to keep going? Um, And really it is just that love of possums and koalas and bees and ferns, you know. Um, It's really just about thinking about our places and caring for them better. It's not rocket science, literally. (laughs) 
So that's okay. So first of all, thank you. Amazing. I'm going to be listening to that dozens of times over just to try and grok everything that you've just covered, which you've clammed an enormous amount in. Um, so two things. When someone you know, hears about this and they may say, okay, well, where do I begin? You know, I'm, I'm here and I, and I would like to begin, you know, doing more on my, you know, with myself and, you know, with those that I have, you know, the most immediate access to, yes. that's, you know, colleagues, you know, trust, you know, friends, family, like where does somebody start? I'm going to project a little bit here, seeing the system that they're in. Yeah. Right. I mean that, that, but, but even that, you know, requires a change of thinking. So let's just get right, yeah. right back to the very beginning You've been doing this for a long time. How, yeah, how have you seen people change the way they think? Like, what are the kinds of ways of being or places to go or yeah. subtle but shifts you, that just start that, that snowball rolling yeah. downhill? Well, look, it really depends on people. I, I, I don't like to be a kind of ideologist in terms of thumping on a, the equivalent of well, I won't refer to any particular books, but I don't want to be someone who tells you the only way forward is this. Sure. What I would suggest is, number one, if you're already involved in caring for the planet, then please keep going and talk to people and listen and learn as much as you can. I I continue to engage in as much learning as possible. But if, if what I'm saying strikes you as, oh, that's odd or that's interesting, then um, literally look up the meaning of ecocentric. Have a think about what it means to think about other species and other plants and animals. Have a little think whether you believe in the creation theory or the or evolution. Have a look um, at the scientific knowledge we have about our interconnected web of life, regardless of how it started. Um, modern science today can shed a lot of light on our interconnectedness. Even Google Tree of Life, you know, be fascinated and amazed by how much you literally have genetically in common, you know, with butterflies and caterpillars and let alone primates and other relatives who are allegedly closer to us. So get engaged with a little bit of knowledge about the science of, of interconnectedness because that's a nice Western way to enter into thinking about this stuff. Then connect with local activities, whether it's land care, weeding, um, planting, picking up garbage, spend some time out in your local area, feet on the ground, wandering about, take your time because that's when you actually notice stuff. That's when you notice the season, the climate, the butterflies, the birds, which fish are running at which time, what flowers are out. And then when you're ready, um, engage with other knowledge systems like the um, Indigenous peoples of this continent. Sometimes it's hard to know where to start. Um, I, I, I'm a little biased, so I would suggest maybe looking up some of our um, some of our talks on the Earth Laws Alliance website, the events page. A lot of our workshops with Future Dreaming are not recorded um, because they're kind of lively and interactive workshops you know, a, a unique moment in time. Um, yes, they start, are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But start engaging um, with the remarkable literature that's out there, whether it's Bruce Pascoe's um, Dark Emu or um, a lovely series. One of the books is called Songlines. It's sitting right here on my table, edited by Margot Neal. You know, engage with different ways of thinking. And you might be from another place, so engage with how um, the First Nations peoples of the U what is now the US and Canada or the First Nations peoples of South America or other places. And older cultures that are um, still got connections to living in place um, really have a very different way of looking at the world. Take your time and have a think about that. Um, and then if you get more excited, please have a, um, connect with us at the Australian Earth Laws Alliance because um, we've got a number of web webinars, workshops, courses, but we're also just open to have a chat. 
um, and we can design workshops for people just to help them understand, pick apart some of the governance systems, um, you know, really just helping with a bit of education. And then I think if, if, if folks are able to start the beginnings of their learnings, there's always ways to get involved. Groups like us, we have student and professional volunteers all the time. Um, and I help them by getting them started on a bit of earth jurisprudence research or then we start delving into whatever area they're interested in, could be law, science, um, some economics, although mostly they f end up at the Nina side of things. So, yeah, I think it's a case of reaching out for knowledge and just exploring. And, yeah, but like I said, if you are literally just Google what is ecocentric, what is ecocentrism, and then start to get to know the plants and the animals in your local area, because if you already love a little bit of nature, then you're halfway there. You know, you've just got to think about why you love that and how amazing it all is. Um, I get very excited when I'm just outside and I see bees, and the native bees. I love Euro bees too. So I think that we've kind of covered a little bit of education there, but perhaps we can, I'll make a note that we can perhaps redress education in our next conversation because we're going to be very fortunate to have another one. We've only got a couple of minutes now on this, like I said, it's very, very sort of precious uh, first foray. So in as much time as you have remaining, final question for today, if these shifts were to be embraced and, you know, please reference as much as is already happening, you know, by way of example, but, but you know, let's just think about what might be possible. So if we had a more into being way of participating in our world what then might be possible through these great structures that have yeah. been created and look there's no easy stepping stones through through the maze you know there's the change on the one hand it can be daunting but on the other hand it's exciting to think that we can change our systems from so many different directions um we've seen with our recent federal election um, people who care about climate have just been elected in or, you know, hopefully they're going to do more. Um, political change could look like benchmarks where nearly all of our representatives have to be engaged in local place and environmental issues, not just some random um, portfolio of one person. Political representation for nature inside things like parliament, where you literally, these are, there's this whole uh, area of work called eco-representation, where uh, however you set it up, there are literally people who are trying to represent the voices of nature and that they would be listened to. Um, you know, if people are arguing for certain proposals and certain projects, there's um, if you go down scale, not down, but to a smaller scale, there's a wonderful process called Council of All Beings, which is sort of in deep ecology and it's where people um, literally wear masks and they take on the persona or that's not the right word, the anemona, the animalness or the plantness of a place, and they actually take on those um, life forms and think about the issues. And it really, I've done my small council of all beings and student groups and law students really embrace it. And they come out, they really feel quite changed because they've had a chance to think from a completely different perspective, which we're often not invited to. But anyway, that's just political stuff. Um, what would it look like? So many things could change. The legal system in Australia is pretty much transplanted from the British Empire in 1788. We've had many modifications, of course, for Australia, but it is still fundamentally looking like um, aspects of the British legal system. We could change many parts of our legal structures 
and I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but in our Green Prince program, which I was going to mention because people might be interested, we're helping folks connect up with others in their local bioregion and actually think about the big picture of the whole of landscape, what's the living world like in this place, and how might we rethink uh, local laws and local economics to better pattern into the particulars of this local place. And so that to me is like a bottom-up approach in terms of actually having local people connect with their place more deeply and eventually be able to advocate for the kinds of significant legal transformation that we need. And in terms of the economy, well, the economy would look very different indeed because instead of having GDP and growth-focused ways of measuring so-called success, and there's already wonderful movements on this um, around the world with well-being economics, donut economics, and um, 30 years of attempts to have different kinds of indicators for general community and environmental health. But we're seeing in Australia a number of government agencies in different states picking up on well-being budgets, and these take would should take in a in a um, interconnected, earth-friendly kind of society. Um, if we have to unpick all of these sort of rigorous systemic things that we've created in industrial society, then we should begin by unpicking things that are focused on growth and helping to rebuild our ideas to make sure that we're thinking about health of the living world, thriving, happy communities, not just about consumption and production and what we sell and buy. And in fact, it's that transformation of those ideas that translates into the specific action. So we wouldn't have GDP. We'd have perhaps the Australian National Development Index, Andy. It's got 13 different indicators and it's being developed as a pilot very shortly, about to be kicked off um, in Western Australia, apparently. Um, And our education, I can mention this as part of our vision for a better future, we wouldn't be um, taught how to blow up and destroy things. We would be taught what ecological restoration looks like, how infrastructure could be made from the kinds of substances that can break down over time or be reused or be completely recycled, circular economy ideas, but starting from a different place in the first place. Our education engineers and scientists would be devoted to helping solve environmental problems and to care for the environment, not just march across landscapes, building massive concrete structures that we may or may not need. And education would be about ensuring that civil society, we all understood how our systems worked. This is this still astonishes me that most grown-ups in Australia don't understand how our legal system works, who's making decisions for them, how politics works. You know, that seems very odd to me that you're that we have a society perfectly happy for a certain group of elites to know stuff and everyone else just gets on with their daily life. I think a more informed, enriched society, not everyone wants to know all the details, but that everyone could have access to the nurturing conditions to understand how to build systems that care for people and care for the earth. That's what the vision is about. And there's no silver bullet. There's no simple answer. Um, But we've done enough analysis to see what's possible, and it's exciting. It's not easy, though, (laughs) but it's exciting to think what it would look like if we all turned towards supporting life, uh, people and non-people. No, it is exciting. It's energising. It's only exhausting when you can you feel like you have to do like more than any one being is capable and has capacity of. And because of what you've just said there, there are so many ways to 
repattern the maze so the pathway through it seems clear yeah that there is a role for literally everyone yes you know that wants to be involved so therefore it's not exhausting because many beings make light work that's right and there's no there's no other way to do it you know no one person can solve this i mean i often also get asked by younger people about how you handle burnout and i say well burnout comes from thinking you can change the whole system that you can fix the whole thing and I say, I often say to young'uns, you know, don't take this as a harsh thing, but if you remove the ego and just accept your one small part in the bigger picture, you won't have burnout because you'll know you cannot change it on your own. You can just do what you can do in your time. And although you'll feel grief for what we're losing through the terrible bushfires, the recent floods, I've been particularly filled with grief. Um, but you just get up after you've had your doona day and keep trying. So, yeah, there's so much we can all do. Um, and I feel like I feel like there's an awful lot that's possible. And perhaps the recent election has given some of us who are deeply concerned about the future a little ray of hope in terms of the political system. But I guess I'd like to perhaps end on the note that it doesn't change the work that everyone's already doing, from land care to natural resource um, management groups who are trying to analyse whole of country to all the Indigenous groups who are protecting country and, and out there as land and sea ranges to to folks like myself who are trying to make a humble contribution, that work doesn't stop. We just hope that more enlightened folks in government will take necessary steps to speed up the transition to a, an ecological society or a fairer society. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful resting place. <laughs> I'll look forward to our next conversation and we, 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 we won't pick it up from here. I'm very conscious of your time. I know you have something else to get to and thank you for your generosity in being here today. If, if people want to know about AILA, the best place to start, we have several different websites, but we call our AILA website the mothership. Everything is connected to it. It's just earthlaws.org.au. Um, and if you're interested in our um, systems change initiative, Greenprints, that's greenprints.org.au. Um, and you'll find it all on our websites. So, yeah, thanks so much for your time. It's really lovely to chat with you, and I look forward to our next discussion. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, there was there was a lot in there. I know that. <laughs> I feel that. And, yeah, you, you may already have paused and, you know, taken a couple of reflective spaces as, you know, Michelle's been taking us through some... You know, some really fascinating terrain in there. And, you know, I've been immersing myself in a couple of these very, very significant institutions uh, that Michelle works in and with, you know, economics and education and the law. Um, and so right here, right now, if you haven't done so already, do scroll down and click on the links in the show notes wherever you're listening to this, and explore the sites for Ayla, Nina, and Regenerative Songlines. Those are three, just three, there are more, but those are three very, very significant arenas that Michelle convenes. And if anything in what we've just discussed resonates with you, then start with Ayla and then kind of go, go from there. Uh, I highly recommend the Nina course on well-being economics, which will, I anticipate, run again next year. It's an eight-week course, which I completed just earlier this year in 2022. And you know, I'm currently working my way through the AILA Earth-Centered Futures course as well. 
So Michelle is, is returning next season uh, to go into these frameworks, these earth-centered frameworks in more detail. You know, this conversation, as you can tell, was very much aligned with this season's focus on nurturing conditions. So, you know, a suggestion here, you know, just pause and see yourself in this system. Okay? Think about all of the reinforcing actions that you've taken today to perpetuate the conditions that these current systems give us, right? Where you spent your time, what you've done, what cost that's been at, and what it's returned to you. And this, that set of prompts, like that little investigation, uh, has been a really, really interesting one for me that I've been doing over the last couple of years, just kind of very, very gradually sort of like waking up to say, oh, okay, right, yeah, that's where I am. That's where I am. That's what I'm doing. That's what I am bringing life to. And then being very intentional about what I have done to answer those prompts with those frames. And especially in the context of regeneration, which as you sense has become a bit of an emergent theme here is becoming and will be a really deep investigation in our next season how do i create more life than i take today and as michelle says you know look at the cultures and approaches of societies that have this real affinity and respect for place and you will find that those cultures always more life than they take so wherever you are in the world where are the cultures that do that that you can connect with and explore i will leave this here now there and say see you soon for a quite different conversation um with Stephen moyer which you know kind of really brings like a kind of a slant on you know someone like michelle deep in this work for decades someone like Steve much more recent and just shows this point that Michelle has made that everyone can have access to these systems that can nurture people and planet so see you in the next episode as always be well lead well and go and create a nurturing world see you next time As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. to world.